audience. I'm Peter Resnick, and welcome to the Dr. Peter Resnick's Toolbox. <laughs> you know, they call me uh, from the studio some eight, nine minutes before two o'clock, so I would be tuned in and be ready for the beginning of my show. And lately, in the past, uh, a person right before me was uh, Mrs. Leeds with Leeds stories. And I enjoyed actually interviews that she was taking with different people. But now Ralph Nader is speaking right before me. And I have to make a comment, though I promised myself I will not <laughs> before I uh, turned on the computer. And yet I have to say something. You know, it's amazing to me how uh, educated, otherwise intelligent, rational, and honest people suddenly when it comes to Israel turn into something other. Uh, you probably know the term Trump derangement syndrome, where again, a Trump, Donald Trump is a very fallible human being. Uh, and he did some wonderful things for America and some, but perhaps uh, I don't cannot recall terrible things that he did for America, but he had uh, um, or has a challenging character for some people. Uh, and so some people, regardless of what Trump would do, they would just slam him at any opportunity. So the, the term came around as Trump derangement syndrome. And I think now there is an Israel derangement syndrome. Uh, information uh, that only is against Israel will be accepted by those people. And, and Ralph Nader is simply saying lies. And he's an intelligent person. He knows history. He talks to people who obviously do not know history, says things about this bombing, a bombing of deliberately bombing um, mosques and, and hospitals, as if that's what Israelis want. They don't care about people and they want to have bad press. No, he's not mentioning anything about uh, Hamas storing weapons there, having their headquarters. And he mentioned, just now he mentioned, uh, from 1948, that's all what Israel did, oppressing people. What kind of nonsense it is. He knows that every war against Israel was initiated by countries surrounding Israel. But for whatever reason, I don't even know what it is. Um, it's it's kind of sad a little bit, but okay. I will. I needed to say it. You know, I need to vent. Maybe it's like my form of psychotherapy. So I hope, ladies and gentlemen, you don't mind me venting. I want to remind you. Next week we'll have a show des designated to night dreams. If you have a night dream you want to share or question uh, regarding night dreams, you're welcome then um, to call in. I have a lot to share with you today, um, but I also want to offer you an opportunity to ask questions on the subject that we're discussing or to make comments. So please feel free to call uh, this number 888-874-4888. Again, 888-874-4888. Also, you can listen 
uh, to us, uh, just dialing this number 641 uh, 643 7091. 641 7091. If you can call or um, you just don't want to, but you want to send me an email, here is my email, Peter, number 1818, Resnik, R-E-Z-N, as Nancy, I-K, at gmail.com. Peter, 18, Resnik, at gmail.com. Thank you very much, Vito, for your email, and thank you so, so much for your very kind words um, that we just had a little private interaction um, through email. I don't... There is nothing new to share. It's just Vito was very kind to me. I, and I'm still corresponding with my friend from California, Ricardo. Remember, he was writing about those who choose to be single. They're happy with them by themselves with their lives, but are not interested in having a romantic relationship. He wrote in this last email, the Taoists are explicit about exercises for utilizing sexual energy and the importance of a man cultivating his zinc or essence by harvesting his semen to produce more chi or energy, which then can be transmuted for spiritual growth or general improvement of one's health, behavior and disposition. Yes, Ricardo. I am quite familiar with the Chinese or the Taoist practice of cultivating sexual energy. In 1998, I took a two-day workshop with Mantak Chia, the Taoist master. Uh, and he, he wrote then a book called Cultivating Male Sexual Energy. Um, he co-authored it with Michael Wynn, uh, basically Michael Wynn wrote a book because then, uh, it was so many years ago, 25 years ago, uh, Mantak Chia wasn't really speaking English very well. It was difficult to understand him, but the workshop was remarkable. And then after the workshop, I studied with Michael Wynn, who was number one student of Mantak Chia and co-authored the book. Uh, I studied with Michael Wynn for one year. Every Friday I would take, I lived on Upper East Side and I would take a train all the way to the Lancy Street where he had, Michael Wynn had his office and I was learning the techniques in great detail. So later on, Chia wrote uh, a book on cultivating female sexual energy and then the book for couples. So uh, so the short answer is, yes, the Taoists focused a lot on cultivating sexual energy. In fact, in the times of the Yellow Emperor, uh, nobility were all practicing these Taoist techniques of sexual energy. Uh, the email continues, does the Kabbalah or the Bible or the Talmud refer to any similar practices for Hebrew males to cultivate his her sexual energy? The answer is no. Judaism does not have 
uh, teachings like Tantra uh, in Hinduism or Taoist sexual teachings. I was actually contemplating on that. I was questioning why would the Hebrews not have their system? And my answer actually to it is that um, if we accept that everything comes from God and God is kind of running the show and organizing things for the betterment of humanity, uh, I think that the purpose for the Hebrews not to come up with something on their own because there is there is this complete, there are complete, two complete powerful systems in Hinduism uh, as yoga and tantra and in, in Taoism in China. So that Hebrews would humble themselves and learn from other cultures. That's my understanding. Ricardo continues, from my notes on the Torah, I found this of interest, Exodus 19. 19. Um, Moses came down to the people and warned the people to stay pure. Be ready for the third day. Do not go near a woman. And then Leviticus, he quotes, 16. When a man has an emission of semen, he should, shall base his whole body in water and remain unclean till evening. I reached to the conclusion that the purpose of adult entertainment is the sinister intention to drain men of their semen, to keep men mentally and physically weak and impure, lusting and desiring flesh like a beast. Well, Ricardo, you went much further than I did. I'm, I, and I'm not sure if there is this uh, plot, so to speak, to weaken man, even though you can say, well, there is, there is the other, the Satan, or the, the what Hebrews call Yetzirah, the evil inclination. There is a um, challenger, or uh, in in the uh, Bible it's called Satan, uh, who is interested in undermining undermining man's freedom. But I did not go so far. For me, it's, I think it's just adult entertainment sells. Uh, and we have inside of us this, like you say, the beast impulse. So uh, we have the impulse for intoxication, if it would be permitted, and thankfully it is not. Uh, they would promote cocaine and other drugs because they sell. Uh, so, but perhaps there is a deeper meaning to it. Um, in the Jewish tradition, there is understanding, clear recognition of sexuality, and the importance that that aspect of our humanness is fully satisfied. That is why young people are encouraged to get married sometime from the age of 20 to 25 or sometimes younger, from 18 to 25. Because uh, this sexual energy needs to be somehow expressed, and it will, uh, unexpressed, unchanneled, 
channeled, um, it will express itself either in aggression or, or some kind of destruction from studies, from pursuing one's goals in life. So, though Judaism does not have teachings like Tantra in, uh, in Hinduism and Taoist sexual teaching or yoga, Jewish people are never discouraged from learning useful tools for physical well-being. They are discouraged, though, from engaging in spiritual aspects of those practices. i give you an example. Um, there is yoga, and a lot of religious Jewish people practice yoga. But they are, not, they are discouraged from practicing uh, Eastern meditation. And mostly when we know we think about meditation, it, we're thinking about Eastern meditation. And that is of emptying the mind. Because the principle, underlying principle of the Eastern tradition is totally different from Western tradition. Uh, Eastern, for the Eastern tradition, the world is Maya. It's an illusion. And therefore, and, and all disfigure, the disfigurement, all the problems in the world come from our thoughts. So if we free ourselves from our thoughts and observe our thoughts rather than identifying with them, we'll free the world from evilness. That's why the teachings of the Buddha begin with the words, we are what we think, all that we are arises with our thoughts, with our thoughts we create the world. As opposed to the Eastern approach for uh, in the Western spiritual tradition, and that is Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, the world is the concrete reality. That's why you don't see uh, Tibetan charities, Hindu charities, but you see Catholic charities, you see uh, Hebrew charities, because uh, in the Western spiritual tradition, our goal is to go, since the world is a concrete reality, is to go and to make concrete changes in the world to better. Now I would like to share with you, ladies and gentlemen, something new I learned about the chapter of the Torah, which we already covered. We already spoke about the creation of a man and a woman, chapter 2, uh, verse 7, Adam, and chapter 2, verse 22, um, creation of the woman. But during this week, I heard a talk by Rabbi Manis Friedman, which resonated with me uh, because he was what he was saying totally corresponded with my observations over the decades of my experience as a therapist. And that was about the origins of the difference between men and women. Yes, probably you are all familiar with the book by John Gray, Men are from Mars and women are from Venus. And that's how men and women are. They're different. Men want to conquer, accomplish, prove themselves, be right, have sex, be strong, and so on. That's all according to John Gray. Uh, women want attention, appreciation, tenderness, and all, all those things that women want. I will not be listing them. There are a lot of 
needs that women have, and men too. But no psychology ever explained why, why it was so. But the rabbi begins with this assertion that is in the Torah. We are told in chapter 2, verse 7 and 22, how a man and a woman were made. Remember 2.7, God, Lord, formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. Uh, and in uh, chapter 2, verse 22, it's written, and the Lord fashioned uh, the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman. And since nothing, absolutely nothing, which is written in the Torah is without a purpose, there must be a reason, Rabbi Friedman said, why this is mentioned about how specifically a man and a woman were made. God wanted us to know it. And what were we told? that the man was created from nothing, from dust. And the woman was created from a man. In other words, the man was created out of nothing and the woman was created from a living being. It seems to make a huge difference. Because, and we know it from psychology, that your origins, where you come from, have a great impact on your personality your worldview, your perception of yourself and others. So the male psyche has a memory of having been nothing, which a woman's psyche does not have. And that's why men have a legitimate, healthy fear of turning out to be nothing. You know, ladies and gentlemen, if a person grew up with a father or mother who were alcoholics, they're afraid of what? Of becoming alcoholics. And if they grew up with a parent who accomplished nothing, and they grew up in poverty. In fact, we know in psychology that often people overcompensate become workaholics to make sure that they will never live in poverty. And unfortunately, and I have seen it in my practice, they put so much energy and time into work, making money, making sure that their children would not grow up in poverty, that they create the world to the, for their children, in which the children grow up in what? Poverty, not financial, but the worst kind missing a parent because the parent or both parents were never available. So back to our subject. If a man is treated like he is nothing, he can actually become nothing. And anytime anything reminds him of that nothingness, he panics. And that's why men are so vulnerable. They have such a very fragile ego. 
Because if a woman in any way suggests that he is nothing, he is terrified. Because he suspects that he is nothing, even without her help. That's why a man is so sensitive to criticism. Because deep down he suspects that he is less than zero. He is zero. It's not a conscious thought. It sits somewhere deep. And that's why men overcompensate. The only thing I, Peter Resnick, think can help a man to get away from the horror of suspecting that he is nothing is to remind himself that he was made in the image and likeness of God. Though it may get him carried away. That reminds me of a joke. Uh, you know, John and Nancy have a spiritual disagreement. <laughs> he thinks he's God and she doesn't believe it. Uh, but that's when a man is overcompensating. Overall, if a woman simply keeps acknowledging every man's accomplishment, she will keep him afloat. So if your daughter comes home from school and says that uh, nobody, nobody likes me, everybody hates me, it means that she's wondering, how come? But if your son says nobody likes me, he knows why. Because deep inside, he suspects. He is nothing. He deserves it. In the woman's psyche, there is no zero. She is either one or two or three or four or ten, but rarely, very rarely, zero. And though one or two or three is not so great, but if she is treated as a zero, it doesn't compute. That's why some women, it's a paradox. That's why some women stay in abusive relationships. Because a woman knows that she is something, she is good. But maybe she is not good enough, because she is not nothing. Maybe she is not good enough. And if she really tries just a little harder, he will appreciate it. A woman came from the man, so her fear is not becoming nothing, but in disappearing in the man, going back to where she came from, dissolving, losing herself in the man. That's why a woman needs attention of her man and his acknowledgement of what she did, what she thought how she handled the children, what she was involved with during her day. She needs confirmation that she has her independent from her husband experience, that she is not disappearing in her man's life. And those who do disappear in their men's lives, at least some of them become seriously ill. That I have seen over the years. 
as I worked with many women with breast cancer diagnosis. Uh, they would totally, remember, breast is about nourishment, and they would be totally nourishing to their family, to their husbands, to their children, but undernourished themselves. So to conclude with this subject, we need to be aware of the fact that these two are very different reactions that men and women have uh, such differences from, from ancestral memory. Uh, it's physical, it's mental and physical. It's rooted in the, the emergence as a species. Very different species indeed. And the awareness this, of this reality may be a good start for healing these deep-seated anxieties. Okay, now let me give you yet another part of the workshop that I promised to deliver to you piece by piece. I'm talking about the workshop, keeping sanity in the world that went crazy. Uh, one more tool, and I hope you practiced what I gave you last week. One more tool about that may help you to stay balanced is to refuse to debate. Do not argue with people. Do not engage. It, it just drains your energy. Most of the time when there are arguments, uh, a person waits, if they're polite enough, till you finish with your argument. They're not really considering what you're saying. They just have their piece of truth to which they are attached. So they're waiting when it's their, their turn. Um, it doesn't work. So if this person, unless it's your child, you need to uh, break them for them down things and explain in uh, things um, to help them to be clear about issues about things around them but if it's an adult you simply listen to what they say make a decision how you feel about it see if there is any truth to it and if, uh, in response you can say thanks for sharing or I hear you uh, I spoke once already, a long time ago here, about introducing dialogue in your relationships, where you share with something, and if a person is interested in more information, they will ask. The same thing if a person shares with something, you may find it interesting, and you may want to ask questions, or you may want to, uh, to ask a person to expand on the subject, or you simply say, thank you for sharing, or mm, that's interesting, and that's it, and drop the subject. Dialogue is simply putting on the table something to a person's consideration, not arguing. Simply, this is what I know. Uh, and if they are not interested, just don't try to persuade them in anything. Uh, and another thing I wanted to share with you today, uh, is remember fashions come and go. Do not make changes 
which you cannot reserve. I'm not talking about uh, tattoos. Yeah, that that's <laughs> the physical uh, fashion. People now put the tattoos on. Um, you know, I, I understand the tattoos uh, in tribal societies where it has every tattoo has deep meaning. And it's a, a part of the spiritual tradition. I'm talking about people tattooing their faces, tattooing their bodies, and then you're stuck with it. I know a number of people who did tattoos and now they're grown people and it's like they they have to live with it. But that's not, that's a, the um, simplest way uh, to make changes that you cannot change, uh, to make choices. But I'm talking about um, not not getting married, for example, if you don't feel that this is your partner for life, but just because uh, you know you already promised, or because what will people say? We already send out invitations. This kind of nonsense. It changes your life, and you may be pay- paying the price to the rest of your life for the for doing something that you feel obliged to do. Um, don't make these mistakes. Always step back and consider. Don't make decisions in spare of the moment. Decisions concerning your whole life. You have to sit back look and think if this is the right decision. People talk even about marriage, even about choosing a life partner. You must use intellect, not only the heart. I know modern psychology encourages you living by the heart. Uh, But the heart very often uh, tells you something that um, that is not healthy for you. For example, people may be what they call the term madly in love. I, 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 I don't like this uh, expression. It's kind of erroneous to me or even worse when people say I cannot live. When somebody says to me, I cannot live without her. I say, well, are you saying to me that you are a parasite? That's kind of offensive. Uh, but it's kind of a little bit of a shock. I say parasite cannot live with a, without a host. You need to know how to live without somebody. Uh, a real relationship is not where you're dependent on each other or you keep staring at each other um, in awe. No, a relationship is when two people look in the same direction, have the same visions. So you may be in love, in lust, uh, in awe, uh, infatuated by someone, but you have to ask yourself important questions. Do we have the same vision for our life? Anyway, that's what I wanted to share with you regarding that uh, keeping sanity in the world that went crazy. And now, now we finally go back to our main journey I don't see anybody calling. No. Uh, no. So, uh, the in-depth exploration of the Torah. Last week we ended uh, 
we actually finished the chapter 11 when the father of Abraham, Terach, took his two sons and their wives and his grandson, Lot, and settled with them in Haran, where he eventually died. And we are coming to, I think I told you last, last week, to the most exciting, one of the most exciting parts of the whole Torah, and that is the unfoldment of life of Abram, who eventually became Abraham. God gave him an extra letter um, to Abram's name. We're introduced in chapter 12 to a totally new kind of a hero. Remember, in, in ancient mythology or history, there were heroes. There is a story of Gilgamesh, Sumerian king who ruled uh, some time, 25 or, or more, um, 2,500 years BCE, on some accounts say 26 years, to 2,600 years, or Egyptian god Horus, or Hercules in the Greek mythology. Uh, every story of great masters or heroes of the past were about their strength, their power, their ability to defeat enemies. In Abraham, we encounter a new hero, not with the sword, but with the mind and heart, who is humble, caring, welcoming to strangers, can put a fight if necessary, but mainly a philosopher who is listening to his inner voice in search for truth, and the teacher who is willing to be a student of God and carry the message of God to humanity. So let's start chapter 12. And the Lord said to Abraham, go forth from your land, from your birthplace, from your father's house to the land that I will show you. Here may be the answer to why Terah left your southern Iraq, because that's where Abram was born. Because Abram could not longer, no longer live with the rules of the society he grew up in. And somehow Terah understood that he must, they all must live here, or Ur, where they lived all their life, made a good living, selling idols, right? And where he Terah raised his children. But listen again to what Abram heard from God. Go forth from your land, from your birthplace, and from your father's house to the land that I will show you. And the voice was so clear to Abram that he did not doubt that that, that was God calling him to make a leap into the unknown. Notice, Abram was not told where to go. <laughs> Just imagine some of this, the inner voice says, just get up and go. Oh, you can pack, pack your car. 
and go. I will tell you where to go. And, and you have to pack. Just to the land, I will show you. That was enough. That is, everything that is familiar to you, you have to drop, leave it in the past. The only thing you know, the only certainty in your life is this voice. And so, ladies and gentlemen, we are all called sometime in our lives. Remember, Abraham and all other characters that will come in the Torah are archetypal characters. We are following those archetypal characters in our emotional and mental lives. So we are all called, we are all called sometime in our lives to follow this inner voice. It is important not to miss that opportunity. And in the verse 2 uh, of, of the 12th chapter, God tells Abram, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will aggrandize your name, and you shall be a blessing. Verse 3, and I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. And Abram went as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran. And ladies and gentlemen, with this call to Abram and this answer to the call of God, the whole new era of humanity begins. Abram, as I said, is a new human being who is responsible rather than like his predecessors, avoiding responsibility. That's what Jonathan Sachs writes. Adam denied responsibility for eating from the tree of knowledge, putting responsibility on the woman and on God. Cain denies moral responsibility for his actions, saying, I am not my brother's keeper. Noah denies responsibility for the community and takes care only of his own well-being. And the builders of the Tower of Babel fail to test the test of, of responsibility, of respecting the boundaries between man and God, and trying to reach the heavens by building this erroneous building, which, by the way, by today's, today's measurements, is hardly an eight-story building. The point is not how tall the building was. The point, of course, is how is, is the intention to challenge God. And we know every attempt to be better than God fails miserably. Unlike Adam, Abram accepts personal responsibility, setting out on a journey in obedience to the divine call. Unlike Cain, 
he accepts moral responsibility, rescuing his nephew Lot, we'll read about it a little later, from being captured. That's where, you know, it's not that he doesn't know how to fight. He gets a group of 300 warriors and frees Lot. He is his brother's keeper. The very principle that Cain denied. In contrast to Noah, he accepts collective responsibility. He challenged God, trying to protect the inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the contrast to the builders of the Bab Tower of Babel, he declares that he, compared to God, is dust and ashes. That's humility and also recognizing the boundaries. This is God, and this is me. Let's go on. Uh, verse 5, And Abram took Sarah, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions and that they acquired, and the souls that they acquired in Haran. And they went to go to Canaan, and they came to the land of Canaan. And Abram passed through the land till the place of Shem. Ta -ta 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 -ta. And the Lord, verse 7, and the Lord appeared to Abraham. Now, it's not, now the, um, Abraham doesn't just hear the voice. It's written that the Lord appeared to Abram. Uh, we don't know he Lord appeared in, in a night dream or as uh, as some kind of energy, we don't know. And he said, to your seed I will give this land. And there, he it continues, and there he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Which means Abraham, Abram, still Abram, is grateful. He builds an altar, which means he takes God's word. God said, leave your home and go. Abram goes. God says, your seed will live in this land, which means Abram, who is now 75 years old, will have a child. And Abram celebrates. No question. Now remember, he is 75 years old, and his wife cannot have children. And yet God promised that to his seed, to Abram's offspring, God will give the land. And Abram does not argue, does not say, look, dear God, how can it happen? He builds an altar in gratitude to God. So how does it apply to us? If we have this inner voice, we have to welcome whatever is coming and follow that voice and live in gratitude. Experiment. You, of course, you need to learn how to listen to that inner voice. I will encourage you to read my article. Um, you know, you go on my website and under articles, you read the article Intuition. Because it is through intuition we are receiving messages from God now. Um, it doesn't seem that angels 
are coming and talking to us uh, these days, unless some people have these experiences. And in the verse 10, still chapter 12, we read, and there was a famine in the land, and Abram descended to Egypt to sojourn there because the famine was severe in the land. Now it came to pass, when he drew near to come to Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, Behold, now I know that you are a woman of fair appearance, and it will come to pass when Egyptians see you that they will say, this is his wife, and they will slay me and let you live. Okay. And here we see that even such a trusting, devoted follower of God as Abram, he, uh, he forgets who is in charge. If God already promised him, so don't worry about Egypt. God will protect you. God told you, you're you will have children. God promised to Abram, but Abram is anxious about what may happen to him in Egypt, and he chose to lie, uh, as if God would not protect, protect him. But from here we see God being patient and non-judgmental, and we'll see it being happening over and over again. And of course, what Abram feared did happen, because Abram chose that path of doubt. Sarah ended up in the harem of the Pharaoh, but we read in the next, in the verse 17, and the Lord plagued Pharaoh with great plagues, uh, as well as his household, on account of Sarah, Abram's wife. And Pharaoh summoned Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell that she was your wife? Uh, so there was apparently some kind of a dermatological problem that God created for the Pharaoh and his household so that Pharaoh would not be able to to have sex with Sarah. God protected Sarah. Uh, but that's, that protection was needed because Abram doubted God, that God would protect him anyway. And yet God still protects uh, Sarah and Abram. Um, and so Pharaoh is really aware that Abram is a special person and that God, if God can do that to, to Pharaoh, that's a real thing that is guarding uh, Abram. And in fact, in the Torah, it's written that uh, Pharaoh gives Ab Abram a lot of possessions and escorts sends people to protect Abram and all his possessions and his wife, sends them out. But in Talmud we learn that Hagar, the servant of Sarah, actually is one of the daughters of Pharaoh, because Pharaoh understands that 
it's a real god. They remember pharaohs called themselves gods, but there was God above him uh, who made him suffer, who gave him this illness. So he understood that somebody really was running the show. And so he wanted his daughter to be in the service of this great man, uh, in that situation, of course, uh, this man's wife. And so, and Abraham leaves Egypt with a lot of possessions. And then we read in chapter 13, uh, Abraham and Lot travel to what is uh, now known Israel, and at that time, land of Canaan. And they already, both of them have a lot of possessions, have flocks, and at some point, their servants have a fight, a quarrel about some well, and Abram understands that there is a problem. They, he does not want uh, any animosity because, between the relatives, and he suggests that Lot takes uh, some part. In fact, he goes, you, if you go to the right, I will go to the left. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. And choose whatever land you want and let me know, and I will choose a different. And uh, the, the sages teach at uh, this point that Lot was kind of not of great moral character. Because the right thing for him to do would be, no, no, you, you are my uncle. You choose the land that you want. But look, uh, Lot raised his eyes and saw the entire plain of Jordan um, that was entirely watered, and it was next to Sodom and Gomorrah. And uh, even though, again, the assumption of the sages at that time, uh, Lot understood that Sodom and Gomorrah people were not so righteous, but the land was so fertile, so good, that he chooses to, to live in that place. And so he settles. And, and then we read, then, then we read that God once again reiterates what God already said, that he will give uh, him the land, to Abraham the land, and, and that his children, his offspring springs, uh, will inherit the land. And then uh, a, an interesting event happens. There are four kings that fight with five kings. And again, what is a king? It was like probably a village or a little settlement, and the chief was called a king because uh, the four kings apparently attack the five kings. One of the five kings uh, is the king of Sodom and Gomorrah. And those four kings win. They not only capture all the, um, what's written in verse 11, chapter 14, they took all possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food, and they departed. And they took Lot and his possessions the son of Abram's brother, and they departed. And he was living in Sodom. So it's reiterated that he was by then living in Sodom. Even though Sodom was a place of, not of righteous people, there was 
uh, uh, rape and robbery, and they lived pretty much like people lived before the flood of Noah. But uh, Lot, even though he was not corrupted, but he chose to live in that place. And so they're all taken into captivity. And the fugitive is written, and the fugitive came to Abram, the Hebrew. Ah, here is the first time uh, we read the word Abram, the Hebrew. What, where does this word Hebrew comes from? There are several uh, interpretations that exist. Uh, one is Hebrew is, is from Eber, Eberu. Uh, Eber was great, great grandson, a uh, grandfather of Abram. But that's kind of a stretch. Um, why would it be Eber, not his great grandfather, not three times grandfather? So, but that's one of the interpretations that Abram comes from Eber. Uh, but another interpretation, the word Hebrew, uh, but we say in, uh, in in English, we say Hebrew, but the word in Hebrew is Ivri. The word Ivri has its own meaning. Ivri means the the one who passes through. So so then then it would be and the and he told Abraham Abraham Abram the one who passes through. And of course, if you think about the Hebrew nation, they're always passing through. They pass through nations. And there is much, much deeper meaning to this interpretation because we are all passing through. We are all here temporary. We are all in transition. In fact, it reminds me of a little story. We don't have much time, but there was a rabbi uh, Cook, who lived, he died maybe 40 years ago, and he lived in Jerusalem. After his wife died, he gave up um, half of his apartment and lived because he didn't need much space. And he lived in one little studio with a lot of books. He published a lot, a lot of books um, and a twin size bed and a little table. And a traveler from America. I came to visit Rabbi Cook. And so he spent time with him, questioning him about Judaism, about his books. But then finally he said, listen, I, I want, I'm, I'm sorry, I want to ask you a question. It may be not modest, but tell me about your personal life. You live in this empty apartment. Where is your furniture? And Rabbi Cook said, and where is yours? And um, the the interviewer said, what do you mean? Where is mine? I'm from America. I'm a traveler. And Rabbi Cook said, and so am I. Meaning, I am the one who passes through. Our life is uh, a journey, uh, transition. We come in, we, can, we go, and the less we are attached to our possessions, the more we understand the transitory uh, experience of our life, and the more we connect with our spiritual rather than physical material life. Anyway, so, uh, and the fugitive comes to Abram and tells him that the his nephew Lot is taken into captivity, and Abram manages to have 300 warriors. Uh, and with these 300, he actually pursues uh, those four kings, he 
defeats them, okay, maybe he is a very good leader and, and knows how to fight, but still, which means their troops were not more than 500, 600, 700, so they were small kings. That's, the story is not about how powerful uh, Abram was, but what he did after he uh, defeated those kings, he took nothing, even though king of Sodom uh, and Gomorrah was grateful and said, just give me my people that they took into captivity, keep all the goods. Abram totally refuses, totally refuses to take anything. He freed his nephew and doesn't want anything for himself. That shows you his character. And that's where that's the end of uh, chapter 14. Uh, hopefully we'll have time to continue the journey. And as we go, there will be more and more interesting stuff about Abraham. Again, it's not only a historical character, not only related to the Hebrew people, but it's an archetypal character that teaches us about us. So far, we learned about making a leap into uncertainty and about being true to, um, to your family. Lot is his family, and he does not stand uh, within, without, without um, putting up a fight. He doesn't see his brother being in captivity. He truly uh, is uh, unlike Cain, um, who said, I am not my brother's keeper. Abram is his brother's keeper, and that's what we're all called to do, to, to see those who are close to us uh, being in peace as we're in peace, and to support them when, when they're struggling. And that's, that's why I have to end, um, because we will run out of time. Again, I'm looking forward to your emails. Thank you for being with me today. If you want talk about dreams, please, uh, next week we can start with that. Um, have a wonderful week. Be happy. Peace to all who want to live in peace. Adelante, get up, to the beat,